a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Pull up a chair. Let's engage in some wrong think, shall we? Oh, I know. It sounds like it's a really dangerous thing to do, but it's kind of a necessary thing in a time where there is mass deception and there are propaganda efforts from every side to try to sway or control what you and I think or what we're able to consider. This program does not claim to have all the answers to all of life's problems. But I will claim that uh, we're making a sincere effort to ask the right questions to where we can can make our own decisions, make our own judgments about what's going on. Unfortunately, there's a great deal of uh, our mass media today, which is serving the role of a narrative manager or basically they're the ones uh, guarding the information and making sure that uh, we don't stray outside the boundaries of what we're allowed to think about. We're actually going to start off with that today. But first, let me give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you want to be a person who sees the world as it is. At least I'm guessing that's why you would listen to a program like this one. And you're willing to do your own homework, which is good. You shouldn't be taking anything I say or any of the articles or any of the guests that I have. You shouldn't be taking them just, you know, on, on the fact, well, they said it, and I pretty much agree with them, so it must be true. you got to be willing to, to look at it, weigh it out for yourself, and come to your own decision. But would, it fi- would you find it interesting if you knew how hard the world's top Internet portals are working to keep us within the boundaries of approved opinion? I'm specifically talking about Google and YouTube. Maybe you got the latest update in terms of YouTube's terms of service. Got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute asking, is YouTube now presuming to be in charge of science? And if you've read the terms of service, you'll understand what he's talking about here. He says, courts around the country are striking down vaccine mandates, even COVID restrictions in general. Protests have erupted the world over. There's a trend in which major names and faces that imposed lockdowns on the country are resigning from their positions or otherwise dropping out of politics. The Biden administration in general has sunk in the polls. And the resistance to the entire regime of command and control that seized the world in March of 2020 is growing by the day. But Jeffrey Tucker says none of this seems to matter to the dominant internet portals or internal portals of Google and YouTube, which Google owns. He says they occupy the number one and number two spots for global traffic and reach. Now, no matter what you think of them, that's some serious power over what the majority of people read, see, hear, and believe. And it's true that critically thinking people have already shifted to DuckDuckGo or Rumble and many other platforms, and their market share is growing to be sure. But nothing can compare to that 75% market share of YouTube or the 86% share of search controlled by Google. 
Now, Jeffrey Tucker says often individual users can develop a distorted sense of that whole based on their browsing habits. He says, you like brownstone.org, for instance. You get great information from this site. So it's easy to forget that its 4 million users seem nearly invisible compared with the traffic enjoyed by the larger sites. No, he says, being on the admin side, the admin side, rather, it's a lot easier to observe how a myth spread, for example, by CNN could reach tens of millions of people, whereas its refutation on a small site might only reach a few thousand. Therefore, the myth stands. So for this reason, their terms of use seriously matter for culture, politics, intellectual life, and even public opinion in general. And Google has just changed its terms as they apply to YouTube. Now, it's a fair presumption that Google's search results will probably reflect these same terms. They pertain directly to the science behind COVID, mitigation policies, and mandates on the vaccines. These new terms go into effect on January 6th of 2022. Why that date, he wonders. If uh, they're truly enforced, freedom of speech and the ability of scientific process to operate unimpeded will be severely curtailed. Jeffrey Tucker says under the new rules, you cannot claim that the pandemic is over, which is to say the pandemic is now declared to last forever. You cannot make claims that any group or individual has immunity to the virus or cannot transmit the virus, which means that all the science on naturally acquired immunity can be deleted. The terms of use also say you cannot claim that vaccines do not reduce the risk of contracting COVID-19, which directly contradicts the FDA. Quote, the scientific community does not yet know if the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine will reduce such transmission. End quote. You cannot post videos alleging that social distancing and self-isolation are not effective in reducing the spread of the virus. And you cannot claim that wearing a mask causes oxygen levels to drop to dangerous levels. Oh, and there's this one. You cannot make claims that achieving herd immunity through natural infection is safer than vaccinating the population. Even though endemicity is inevitable... And vaccines cannot make a substantial contribution to its achievement due to their inability to protect fully against infection and transmission. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, as usual, the long list of do nots also includes statements that are patently false and otherwise ridiculous, so much so that it seems not dangerous to permit them. The full list is extremely long. It includes many fully open questions that Google slash YouTube wants to be declared closed. Some of the do-nots include statements that are contradicted by statements from Fauci and Biden, such as the rule that you cannot make claims that any vaccine is a guaranteed prevention method for COVID-19. Yet the head of the CDC made exactly this claim. He says if these rules are strenuously enforced, millions of videos, interviews, television shows, lectures, press conferences, and even scientific presentations will disappear. Maybe tens of millions, actually all in the name of promoting science or protecting science against its corruption, as if YouTube should be the determinant of what constitutes good science. And here's what Google says about the consequences of violating the rules. We may allow content that violates the misinformation policies noted on this page if that content includes additional context in the video, audio, title, or description. This is not a free pass to promote misinformation. 
Additional context may include countervailing views from local health authorities or medical experts. We may also make exceptions if the purpose of the content is to condemn, dispute, or satirize misinformation that violates our policies. We may also make exceptions for content showing an open public forum, like a protest or public hearing, provided the content does not aim to promote misinformation that violates our policies. Okay, so here's a quick uh, translation. If your content violates this policy, we'll remove the content and send you an email to let you know. If this is your first time violating our community guidelines, you'll likely get a warning with no penalty to your channel. If it's not, we may issue a strike against your channel. If you get three strikes within 90 days, your channel will be terminated. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says an intriguing question for any defender of private enterprise, and he says, I'm certainly that, is why Google would so willingly turn over its platform to a branch of the state and its medical-slash-policy priorities. He says it cannot simply be the desire to only say true things because there's plenty that's thoroughly disputable in these rules. And much has already been challenged by vast quantities of peer-reviewed studies. So how does it come to be that such a huge business can be fully captured by government? Now, he says, I have friends who say it's the reverse, actually. Google has fully captured government and is driving forward the agenda of politics. But Tucker says, regardless, it it becomes a troubled world in which one can no longer distinguish business from the state or either from big pharmaceutical companies. The state finds it more advantageous to enlist business in its rights violations than risk the court challenges that come with directly violating the First Amendment. The law restricts states in ways that do not apply to private companies. So the answer for the state seems obvious. Use the private sector to achieve state policy priorities, particularly as it pertains to controlling the information to which the public has access. I know, I felt the chill go up my spine too. And I happen to think he's right. Jeffrey Tucker says others might observe that Google has everything to gain from its investment in lockdown policies and mandates, all the better to keep people glued to their personal computers. Now, even granting that big tech benefited enormously from the lockdowns, he says, that's an outlook on enterprise that's too cynical for me to believe at this stage. Or he says, maybe I'm just naive. Going to come back to Jeffrey Tucker's article here in a few moments. Of course, I have included a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. So you can check this out at your leisure. If you haven't subscribed to the Brownstone Institute, uh, can I recommend it? There's a lot of great information coming your way from that website. And again, it's not that they have cornered the market on truth, but they're definitely asking the right kinds of questions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, before I dive back into this uh, Jeffrey Tucker article about uh, is YouTube now presuming to be, you know, the uh, the one who tells us uh, what's what science is and what it isn't, we'll get back to that in just a moment. I want to give some love to one of my sponsors, and that is SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, they're actually, this is a brick-and-mortar business, which you will find in St. George, Utah. They've been in business since 1984. It was started by Ken Harker back then, and we are talking about a business that's only changed owners twice in all that time. Right now, it's owned by Teresa Alsop and her husband, uh, Eric Alsop. But uh, if you are in any way 
associated with, uh, with sewing or with embroidery or quilting. And these are way bigger markets than you might think. I mean, if you're, if you're not involved in it, you might think, oh, nobody sews. We just buy our clothes at the store. No, there are a lot of people who do amazing things. And Sewing and Quilting Center has the machines, they have the repairs, they have the thread and, and fabric, and oh, and the training to help you get the most out of those machines. Anyway, you can check out their website. There's a link to it there in my show notes. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop in and say hello to them. I have a feeling this is the kind of thing that could become much more popular, especially as inflation continues to drive up prices. You know, people may see the wisdom in uh, learning how to make or repair, you know, their own clothes versus just got to go buy a new one. Anyway, back to the article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. Is YouTube now presuming to be in charge of science? Now, he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, the fact that Google has everything to gain, you know, from its investment in lockdown policies and mandates if, if it wants to keep people glued to their computers. But he says, I, he goes, that may be too cynical even for me. He says, what does seem clear is that these censorious moves could seriously erode market share and give rise to new platforms that will eventually compete more directly. But before we get too optimistic about this, the time between now and then is still a very long time away. While the change in the scientific culture that uh, this move will enact kicks off next month. Now, he includes the full text of the the Google terms of use as it pertains to the most critical issues affecting freedom, free speech, and science in the world today. In fact, he says, for your research amusement, you can see via the Wayback Machine how this page has expanded from its initial page on May May 2nd, 2020 to today. Pretty interesting stuff. And they have really thrown a lot of rules up there about how you can and how you can't discuss, you know, whatever's going on with with COVID. Or I, I suppose that would translate to pretty much anything else. But doesn't it strike you as odd? That, uh, that we are being so strictly, you know, regulated, or at least there, there's the, this attempt to regulate any discussion. I mean, I can't think of another time where, you know, throttling back on, on the information people could see has, has been so prevalent, at least in my lifetime. But here we are. I just I wonder what what is this portent for the future? I mean, are we are we going to reach the point where, you know, people just sit around with an IV attra- attached to them, or or like uh, like the diabetic insulin pumps that that uh, some diabetes patients have, you know, we'll just have that and that'll you know automatically give us our booster on a daily basis while we just sit and you know read what uh, whatever you know the major search engines or major social media sites will let us know about uh, about what's going on in the world. I mean, I'm only half joking here. If, if you have followed the news headlines, um, what's happening right now? Germany just issued a lockdown for the unvaccinated. Spoke to my daughter in Germany yesterday, and yeah, she said the, the rules there are just incredible. You know, if, if you are unvaccinated, you, uh, this is up to this point. They may be, they may actually just be telling you, nope, stay home. You can't even go to work. But if you wanted to go to work, but you were unvaccinated, you didn't have your vax passport you had to go to a government building. There's a designated building in your area. Stand in line. Get your COVID test every single day. That's before you can go to work. 
Yeah, I know. It's like, now maybe if you're one of those people, everybody should be vaccinated. That serves them right. You know, okay. That's, that's one point of view. On the other hand, it just seems, uh, seems a, a little bit heavy-handed. But people apparently are doing it. Austria, of course, is in lockdown. Australia, which I think is probably one of the biggest cautionary countries to look at, uh, you know, in that uh, I think Australia probably has more in common with America. And I'm not saying that, you know, Germany is like totally, you know, totally different point of view, but um, I think Americans and Australians probably have, uh, you know, there's, there's some kinship there, but they're literally rounding people up and putting them into camps and, and they call them voluntary isolation camps or voluntary quarantine camps. But guess what? When you have barbed wire and you have armed men, standing there to make sure that you don't leave. And there was, I guess, three Aborigines who left and uh, they had to be chased down and captured and brought back. I don't know. That doesn't seem very voluntary to me. That just seems like uh, somebody's really determined to, to keep things absolutely locked down. So if you're one of the people who's, who's resisting this kind of authoritarianism, well, looks like we got our work cut out for us. And, and this is why we need the best information that we can get. I want to shift here to, uh, you know, asking what's the harm in social media giants trying to control what ideas are allowed to reach your eyes and ears? Well, John Stossel suggests Facebook fact checkers are actually stifling open debate. And that's a bad thing, right? If you're, if you're trying to uh, discover the truth, open debate is actually your friend. Stossel says, I've reported how Facebook censors me, and I've also learned that they censor environmentalist Michael Schellenberger, statistician Bjorn Lomberg, and former New York Times columnist columnist John Tierney. He says, Facebook's fact-checkers claim we spread misinformation. Now, in his latest video, he says, John Tierney argues that the people guilty of spreading misinformation are Facebook and its fact-checkers. And Stossel says he's right. Facebook doesn't do its censoring alone. It partners with groups approved by something called the Pointer Institute, a group that claims a commitment to nonpartisanship. But Pointer isn't nonpartisan. It promotes progressive jargon like decolonize the media, and it praises left-leaning journalists, once they even proposed blacklisting conservative news sites. One fact-checker that Pointer approved is a Paris-based group calling itself Science Feedback. Now, Science Feedback objected to an article Tierney wrote saying that forcing children to wear masks can be harmful. He cited cited a study which later passed peer review in which parents complained about masks giving their children headaches and making it difficult for them to concentrate. Facebook calls Tierney's article partly false. Now, that partly false label is nasty because it leads Facebook to stop showing Tierney's work to many people. But here's the point. His article was accurate. Science feedback censored it because parents' comments are not a random sample. But it's obvious that such comments, rather, are not random. Tierney acknowledges this in his article. Now, what should be labeled false is science feedback's sloppy fact check. It includes a key takeaway that says, masks are fine for children over two. But that's not something that most scientists believe, says Tierney. That's not what the World Health Organization believes. And again, he's right. The World Health Organization says kids under five should generally not be required to wear masks. 
Tierney says, there are all kinds of well-documented effects of wearing a mask. Workers who wear masks for a couple hours in Germany have to stop and take a a half-hour break. So this shouldn't be a controversial thing to say. And John Stossel says, no, it shouldn't. But Facebook often censors things that should be talked about. I mean, keep in mind, they banned the discussion of the idea that COVID-19 escaped from a lab. Right? Only reversing course when the Biden administration did. The science feedback doesn't like articles questioning the climate crisis. That's what got Schellenberger punished. They censored me for saying we're not in a sixth mass extinction, Schellenberger complains. But we're not. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. There is a link to it in the show notes. See it for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing this excellent article from John Stossel about how Facebook fact checkers are stifling open debate. I mean, isn't it? It's, on the one hand, we should feel flattered, right? Hey, somebody's looking out for me. Somebody's trying to protect me from bad information. On the other hand, I wonder if that protection can become a little bit smothering. Yeah, right? It's like, this is worse than a helicopter mom, you know, hovering over you every second and making sure, you know, that no germs get on you. But we need open debate. We need the ability to question and to, to discuss these kind of things. And he gives examples of people like, like uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Schellenberger, published for questioning the climate crisis. Uh, Mr. Lomberg, who was censored for pointing out rising temperatures actually have saved lives because cold weather kills more people than warm weather. Stossel says, no scientific study has yet proven that a recent drop in deaths was caused by the temperature rise. But so what? The main point that Lomborg was making was uh, temperature-related deaths fell while the planet warmed, and that is true. Yet science feedback works with Facebook to keep that out of your Facebook feed. Lomborg says the fact-checkers want people alarmed by climate change. It makes it a lot easier to get people to donate money. Science feedback's leader now plans to expand his censorship powers. So he can censor not only Facebook, but other social media. And John Stossel says, okay, that's frightening. He says, I sympathize with Facebook. Some users spread lies. Politicians blame Facebook and demand the company do something. But he says there's no way Facebook can police all the posts. So it does destructive things like partnering with the Pointer Institute fact checkers. Now, these fact checkers have a mission outside just facts, says Lomberg. They also want you to not know stuff. Now, that's not fact check. That's simply saying we don't want to hear this opinion in the public space. Frankly, that's terrifying. The goal is nice, less information on the Internet, but you could very well end up in a place where we only have approved facts that fit the current narrative. And that would be a terrible outcome. But that's the outcome we've got, says Stossel. Facebook and its censors are now the enemy of open debate. Tierney says they're trying to suppress people whose opinions and evidence they don't like. They're not fact checkers. They are fact blockers. And John Stossel says the world doesn't need more fact blockers. We need more freedom to speak, not less. Tend to agree. That's why programs like this and, uh, you know, uh, 
and others exist. You know, I'm, I'm one small voice among many, many voices. But as long as I have breath, I will continue to try to speak and encourage people question these things. Whether you agree with me or not, that's irrelevant. It's probably healthier for both of us if you don't agree. And I do appreciate those people who will hold my feet to the fire and tell me, Brian, I've been checking this. I think you're wrong, and here's why. I've learned a lot that way. But when someone's trying to preemptively keep you from even considering anything that falls outside of the official narrative, I'm sorry, there, I, I, I try to ascribe noble intentions to what people are doing, but I can't see anything there except I must control what you think. I must prevent you from being exposed to any ideas other than what I tell you. And that sounds so controlling and so cultish. I think it's pretty dangerous. I think even Jim Jones yeah, from the People's Temple down in Guyana, I think even he would be like, whoa, let's not go overboard here. All right, shifting gears. Came across another excellent article about the importance of the jury and, you know, we all can, I think most of us can understand the importance of the jury in the pursuit of justice. That's not too difficult to grasp. But would it surprise you to learn that the jury also plays an essential role in protecting against government overreach? This is an article by Jake Welch. The beauty of the jury system as it came in the Rittenhouse trial. Now, again, I apologize for bringing up Kyle Rittenhouse again. I know a lot of people are, I just want to move on. I mean, Kyle himself has said, look, uh, they gave him back his AR-15. And he's like, I'm going to destroy that gun. I don't want anything to do with it. So, you know, this is not uh, let's glorify and give high fives and chest bumps again here. But let's learn the lessons that we can. And Jake Welch says the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was one of, if not the most highly publicized and politicized cases since the trial of O.J. Simpson. With the jury's November 19th verdict causing a storm of both approbation and disapprobation around the world. Now, such high-profile cases are bound to elicit aggressive responses from all sides. Yet what changed this time was the difference in response from certain sections of the public, namely that uh, some viewed the American justice system as defunct and obsolete based on the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on all charges and therefore needed to be reconstructed. But he says, I disagree entirely. Jake Welch says uh, one notable fact about the Rittenhouse trial was the success of the system that acquitted Rittenhouse on all charges. Now, he says, for anybody who followed the trial closely, they would have seen that the pressure on the jury was nearly overwhelming. The pressure came from various institutions, corporations, and political figures alike. One example of this was the trial judge having to urge the jury not to consider the opinions of President Biden. Everybody felt it was their duty to weigh in. Apparently, Ben and Jerry's, which is an ice cream company, for example, tweeted, the Rittenhouse trial displays yet again that our justice system is racist. MSNBC had commentators calling him a little murderous white supremacist, even after the verdict. And thousands of people had liked and retweeted Biden's video linking Rittenhouse with Charlottesville white supremacists. Yet there was more. And that was the threat of violence and looting. As reported by The Guardian, the city of Kenosha was on standby, awaiting the verdict of the jury, as it was hoping to avoid the violence experienced last year. An even greater scandal was the news network MSNBC was banned from the courtroom because one of their reporters skipped a red light to follow a bus escorting the jury home. 
something unquestionably prejudicial to the proceedings. Yet despite all this, the jury nevertheless found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty. A small collection of the public-minded people evaluated the evidence before them and stood defiantly against the state and much of the media to ensure someone innocent of the crimes he was accused of did not spend the rest of his life in prison. This is precisely the reason why juries are worth protecting. Now, he says, I'm sure there were many who wished to see his trial decision reversed or heard again before a political body who would, would, agree with, would agree from Mr. Bumble from Oliver Twist when he says, juries is in educated, gro- let me try that again, in educated, vulgar, groveling wretches. Now, that's no doubt sometimes the case. But the point is, juries have done more to protect the freedoms of the individual more than any philosopher, jurist, politician, or political commentator ever have. The function of the jury system, he says, something barrister Sadakat Kadri calls a civic sacrament, has been widely forgotten and wholly misunderstood as it involves archaic language and sometimes even appeals to sentiment. It dates back as far as King Alfred the Great's legal code promulgated in the ninth century and has evolved regularly since then. Now, one cannot pretend to suggest that juries have been or always will be perfect because they're not. Far from it. David Hume, for example, made the point in the days of the supremacy of the star chamber, juries were no manner of security to the liberty of the subject where the court was resolved to have him condemned. But there can, however, be no doubt that they have been and are a veritable good for us. They ensure, as was demonstrated by the Rittenhouse trial, the state cannot imprison an individual arbitrarily. On the contrary, the state has to present a factual, logical, and well-reasoned argument to 12 random members of the public, persuading them that it is justifiable to remove the individual's freedom. However, the state is fighting against the defense, which seeks to protect the fundamental liberties of the individual and has to prove that the individual is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, a roughly 95% certainty that the defendant is guilty. So there can be no wonder why Lord Devlin, one of the most preeminent British justices of the 20th, 20th century, called the jury the lamp that shows that freedom lives. It means that individuals have a fighting chance in the courtroom. It's not like the European tradition whereby two lawyers are chatting a bit with the judge, usually behind closed doors or in an empty courtroom, about how long the sentence should be, while the defendant is forced to wallow in his alleged criminality. The judge is omnipotent and dictates the direction of the trial. The counsel is duller and useless and simply there to ask witnesses questions. But in no way similar to the art of cross-examination. Of course, there are some advantages to this, such as ensuring justice is as smooth and efficient as a conveyor belt. i got to tap the brakes here because we're up against our own break, but um, this excellent article will be available in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Again, this is from Jake Welch. It's from AmericanThinker.com. And hopefully it helps you see the beauty of the jury system not just in the Rittenhouse case, but in other cases as well. I know, it used to be really fashionable to talk about, hey, how can I get out of jury duty? Based on what I've seen, I would think any freedom-minded person would clamor to want to be on a jury, just to hold the state back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sending out some love today for the concept of the jury. And I'll admit, I was one of those people who used to really get bugged when I would see a notice for jury duty show up in my mailbox. Oh, man. Gonna have to take time off work. It's inconvenient. They want me to travel to another city. And, oh, this sucks. This is so bad. But I've I've paid attention now for the better part of the last 30 years. And what I have seen has convinced me that it's one of the most noble things that you or I could be asked to do, to sit on a jury. And I think especially people who understand the proper role of government, as well as the improper things that government may be doing, you're needed. And sometimes it's it's a matter of somebody, uh, a principled juror, who understands that the state is out of bounds or that the charges have been misapplied or that they don't fit, who stands firm against the other jurors and, and prevents injustice from taking place. You know, the, the article here from... Uh, from Jake, uh, sorry, his last name escaped me, Jake Welch, talks about efficient justice, but he says efficient justice fails to recognize the humanity and raw emotion that one feels when they're staring at 30 years in prison. The English and American tradition, on the other hand, is indeed an inefficient, costly, exhaustive, time-consuming slog, exhausting the defendant, his and his victims' families, and all those involved, But that's the price of a fairer system, one that prioritizes the defendant's freedom above everything else. Now, he says there's a more fundamental reason why juries exist, and that is for the reason that justice is near impossible to define. Rigorous debate about the meaning of justice goes as far back as ancient Greece and has troubled the minds of some of the most intelligent people who've lived since then. But realistically, very few people have even come close to a satisfactory definition of justice. Yet even then... The definitions are far from unchallengeable. Instead, it's much easier to see what justice is not than what it is. Determining an injustice is something most people are capable of, hence why our societies rely on the public's sagacity rather than jurisprudential knowledge. So consider this example. What is just punishment for jaywalking without any other circumstances being relevant? A man simply walks across the road when the light is red and is caught by the police. That's it. The answer to the question of a just punishment is indeed difficult to know. Now, what, on the other hand, is easier to argue is that a $1 million fine is unjust and that the state wanting to send a jaywalker to prison would be extremely unjust. But what if the state wishes to send him to prison for that? Well, fortunately, we're from a tradition that guarantees the state simply cannot do that arbitrarily. In the Anglosphere, habeas corpus is a reality for most others, including first world countries, where it's an ambition or a nuisance. Now, what happened at the Rittenhouse trial was a triumph of the ordinary man over the arbitrary power of the state, and there is a valuable lesson in that. The state thought by simply bringing a prosecution with less than satisfactory evidence, along with enough political pressure, that that would be sufficient to convict Rittenhouse. But thankfully for all of us, it wasn't. That's why they're debating the jury system, because with it existing, the power of the state is forced back. He says, I'm sure many today would prefer a legal system without juries and constant discussion about their efficiency and effectiveness make this a distinct likelihood for the future. 
But he concludes by saying, I know for a fact that if I were forced to sit in the dock accused of a crime I've not committed, I know what system I would choose. Again, this is Jake Welch from American Thinker. There's a link in the show notes. One other commentary about juries that I thought was worthwhile, just to further drive home this point of how essential it is for protection of the rights of the average citizen. This is from Kent McManigal from EverythingVoluntary.com. And again, this has to do with, with Kyle Rittenhouse. He says, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial may have served as a canary in the coal mine, or at least that's how I saw it. And his reasoning is this. Kent McManigal says, government doesn't respect your right of self-defense and would prefer you die at the hands of attackers. Fortunately, the jury saw through the malicious prosecution. Unfortunately, much of the public believed the lies spun by the national media corporations to advance their anti-gun, anti-defense agenda. Rittenhouse was even called a white supremacist and his attackers were called his victims. Rittenhouse was persecuted for or for, for doing something everyone has a natural right to do. Even the attacker who testified admits he wasn't shot till he pointed his gun at Rittenhouse. It would have been impossible of Rittenhouse to allow, or irresponsible, rather, of Rittenhouse to allow himself to be shot. So the trial, if legitimate, would have been thrown out immediately with this admission, but it wasn't. Now, some excuse his attackers because Rittenhouse had a gun. Well, so did the attacker who survived. Holding a gun is no excuse for anyone to attack you, physically or politically. Guns aren't the only tools that can kill, so can skateboards and fists. Now, the ridiculous prosecution even argued that someone has no right to claim self-defense if they have a gun. To claim you lose the right to claim self-defense if you're armed with a gun is not rational, but political. First of all, rights can't be lost. Second, who claims you've done something wrong by being prepared for an emergency? It would be the same if the roles were reversed and Rittenhouse had been the one to point his gun at an innocent person and it be shot because of it. So to charge him with a crime and force him to defend himself from government was itself a criminal act. The dishonesty of the prosecution was astounding. The prosecutor in this case is as much a criminal thug as those Rittenhouse shot in self-defense. He had no case to stand on. Kyle Rittenhouse was a political prisoner and is owed restitution by those who kept this farce going, individually from their personal bank accounts and from selling their property, not from tax funds. He says the prosecutor and others should be destitute after committing this crime against Rittenhouse. Proper restitution would make Rittenhouse nearly as rich as Elon Musk. Now, Kent McMandigal says, I don't believe the court, uh, the government court system is legitimate. I have no respect for it whatsoever. I'm still relieved that it sometimes, thanks to a good jury, stumbles across the right decision. I think back to a friend of mine in southern Utah who uh, he and his dad were facing uh, uh, a felony charge for, I think it was, uh, wanton destruction of property. And and I'll, I'll try to sum this up as quickly as I can, but the bottom line was... They lived well out in the country. They had horses, and apparently their neighbor had uh, a a horse, a stallion, a stud that would come over and uh, was not being properly corralled, and it would come over and would try to breed with their mares. And after, I guess, a long time of warning the neighbor, you need to keep your horse on your property, you need to keep your horse away from our property, Um, they came out and found the horse again, had had gotten to their to their mares, and at this point, 
This rancher said, enough, and went ahead and gelded this stallion. Now, I'm trying to put this in layman's terms without being too graphic, but essentially the, the horse's stud days were over because its testicles were removed. The horse itself was alive and well, but it uh, it no longer was going to face the the temptation to come over and, and breed with, with this other person's mares. Well, the police were called, charges were filed, you know, and I mean, you know, felony charges. Well, the value of that horse is over $1,000 or whatever the, the limit is. So they filed felony charges. And basically, my friend and his dad ended up having to go to court. And they had a jury trial. And in the end, um, it was not a felony conviction. I think there there was... Uh, there was some restitution that was given, but, it, but there was a, either a lesser charge or a lesser punishment, but it all came down to the jury refusing to throw them in prison for protecting their own livestock from someone else's livestock that was not being properly controlled or contained. And when I asked my friend, you know, how, how did it feel, you know, sitting there in court? Were you nervous at all? He says, I really was. But he said, after the... the the jury refused to convict him of those felony charges. He said there was a woman on the jury who came up to him afterwards and told him, you know, you know, we, I, I voted the way I did, you know, because I could not in good conscience put another person in jail for that. And, and this is the point I want to make. It wasn't a bunch of fancy legal reasoning, and it wasn't, you know, because, you know, their lawyer had the smartest argument. Frankly, I think they may have been representing themselves, and they're, they're pretty smart individuals. But my friend's point was, it was simply love for their fellow human beings. A juror who said, you know what, I would not feel right putting my neighbor away or, or seeing my neighbor punished in this way for what he's been accused of here when it just doesn't fit the charges that have been leveled. Every courtroom needs someone who has that kind of love of their fellow man sitting on the jury. Not because they're a bleeding heart, but simply because they can recognize that sometimes that pursuit of justice really becomes a pursuit of injustice. And love is enough to stop it in its tracks. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a first-time wrong thinker, first of all, I want to congratulate you for having the uh, intestinal fortitude to, uh, to give this show a try. I'll admit, my message is not for everybody. Some people will find it just a little too provocative and... Others will find it just a little too mushy and not, uh, you know, hardline enough. Somewhere, I'm sure, in between those two extremes uh, is is where you're going to find the truth. But here's the bottom line. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to convince you that there's only one way to see things. But I am here to encourage you as strongly and as lovingly as I can to think as clearly and independently as you can about what's going on around us. 
I trust you to come to the right conclusions. To that end, I'll share with you the best information that I can find on a daily basis. Hey, by the way, this program is made made possible by sponsors like Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, HSLAmmo.com, GovernYourIncome.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. There's a special place in my show notes where you can get to know my sponsors. I have links to each one of them. And even if you don't need what they are offering at this moment, drop them a note. Tell them, hey, Brian's talking about you. Let them know I'm saying good stuff about them, too. Just, you know, (laughs) so there's no, oh, really? Get my lawyer on the phone. Brian's talking about us again. Well, I'm very thankful. As I sit and prepare each day to do this program, I'm very thankful for the talented commentators who can take complex topics and then distill them down to the key principles at stake, especially if they can do it without getting wrapped around the axle with, you know, partisan considerations. J.B. Shirk's latest piece on how the frogs have begun fleeing the government's boiling pot is a really good example of this. And this takes the, you know, the big picture in of everything that's happening globally, but I, I kind of like his, his conclusions, and I wanted to share this with you. J.B. Shirk says the federal government spies on every email, text, and call you make. It uses your phone's location services to pinpoint where you are at all times. It knows which IP addresses are associated with online comments that have been deemed politically incorrect. It partners, its partnerships with, with uh, Amazon and Walmart, rather, let it know what you're reading and what you're buying. And its partnerships with Google and Facebook let it know what you're thinking. Its partnerships with Twitter and Hollywood allow it to censor unapproved messages before too many brains have the opportunity to consider new thoughts. Its alliance with credit card companies allows it to track all your financial transactions and thereby understand your habits, preferences, choices, and addictions. Its alliance with cellular companies allows it to monitor all your movements, contacts, and associations. And all of these consumer comforts are that are used by the National Security Surveillance State to watch everyone in real time constantly measure every American's potential for subversiveness, even that when an American is engaged in the most mundane things during when that American's engaged in the most mundane things during the course of an ordinary day. Now, he asks, whom does government fear most under these conditions? Hint. It's not the millions of illegal aliens who pour through our uncontrolled borders, supposedly during the greatest pandemic threat in a century, or foreign governments that bankroll American elected officials. How else could Biden and others be other lifelong politicians be millionaires or the threat of an electromagnetic pulse attack taking out America's aging electrical grid because Congress's infrastructure spending won't bother fixing fixing actual infrastructure when there are so many campaign donors and other special interest groups to pay off. No, it's the person who has no problem walking away from the government's panopticon to go hunting in the woods, who decides to pay in cash, or who's woken up to the reality that the federal government is in the business of control. It is the solitary American capable of questioning the government's official state narrative and willing to think for himself who scares the bejesus out of the powers that be. It's the patriotic grandmother who has the temerity to show up at the nation's capital after a heavily disputed election to wave a Trump flag while drinking hot chocolate. It's the parent who has the gall to believe that the public should be in charge of public education. 
It's the humble police officer publicly outed and fired for privately giving a word of encouragement to an innocent teenager politically persecuted for defending his life against a state-sanctioned Antifa mob. It's the healthcare worker, firefighter, blue-collar worker, or soldier who refuses to let Big Brother pump him full of experimental gene therapies for the remainder of his life just because people who wear their prestige like crowns proclaim, you must because we say. In other words, governments pretending to protect freedom are most afraid of individuals who insist on being free. Now he asks, does that seem like a system that is destined to survive? J.B. Shirk says, although I'm deeply sympathetic with those Americans who throw up their arms in hopelessness and fatigue at the growing authoritarian state that's visible everywhere, I would point out that self-sustaining human systems function best when individual voluntary acts interchange organically and invisibly to keep the societal machine running from the bottom up. When coercion and surveillance are required to artificially keep society intact through a top-to-bottom tyrannical squeeze, the whole system is at risk of collapse from a single dissenting voice that chooses to throw sand into the rusting, brittle cogs. And when the social fabric is knit together with individual free will, you get an American flag for which people are willing to die. When governing elites choose to push their sinister interests upon the masses through the threat of punishment and the attractiveness of cheap rewards, you get a meaningless multicultural ball of yarn that free-thinking people learn to kick around for sport. Authoritarianism has taken root in America, he asks? Yes. The police state is beginning to enforce its will at the expense of dissents? Dissent, certainly. All hope is lost because the political left's long march through the institutions is now heading, is heading up the front drive toward total victory. Oh, contraire, though, says J.B. Shirk. The state's slow yet relentless takeover of society may have achieved success this last century by dedicating its enormous energy to rounding up all the independent-minded frogs and throwing them into the same barely-simmering pot under close watch until those in power became hungry enough to feast. But now our totalitarian cooks have begun boiling the societal pot with such intemperance that the more slippery frogs have begun squirming to safety and threatened to topple over the whole cauldron, leaving the tyrants with nothing to eat. Shirk says watching the government lay down fresh mandates and executive orders demanding that citizens submit to its will or suffer the consequences should be seen not as a sign of unstoppable power, but rather as evidence that its grip on power is spinning out of control. For the time being, even its most important objectives, training Americans to accept forced injections and digital passports, have been put on hold because too much of the workforce has said no. What's the lesson here? That pushing back on the immoral and unconstitutional dictates of a government exercising illegitimate power works. And even more importantly, that the government is more afraid of the people than the people should ever be of their government. Now he says, let me be clear. We've had a three-body problem in the United States since World War II. Number one, the Democrats have been steadily pushing Marxist socialism upon the American people while claiming to liberate them. Number two, with the exception of small reprieves provided by Presidents Reagan and Trump, establishment Republicans have falsely presented themselves as stewards of the inalienable rights and liberties defended by our founding fathers while actually providing aid and comfort to the Democrats' big government conquest of America.
And number three, a nefarious shadow bureaucracy made up of the permanent D.C. Leviathan, multinational firms, and a financial aristocracy controlling and manipulating the dollar's value, and therefore each American's personal wealth, has pushed unprincipled elected leaders to do what's in its sinister interests, while actively harming the best interests of the people they purport to represent. This was as true 30 years ago as it is true today. What's the difference now? Well, the cat's out of the bag, and more and more Americans are acutely aware that the U.S. government works against their self-determination. Now, on this side of the battlefield, our, pri- our banners proclaim free speech, freedom of conscience, and free will. Our warriors cherish liberty, the right to own property through the efforts of one's own labor, the right to approach the world with an open mind capable of seeking universal truths, and the certainty that they, and not some king or queen, are responsible for their own destiny. On the other side is a crumbling system dependent upon state propaganda, censorship, threats of force, and total control. I'd say that's a pretty fair assessment. Now, these are all fearsome tools of government, to be sure, but... They don't look so attractive when held atop, uh, held high atop banners for all to see, nor do they rally the hearts of men to charge forth against some enemy army, especially when that might mean willingly sacrificing themselves in defense of the intangible virtues of glorious ideas that require that last full measure of devotion to persevere. We'll come back to this in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to lifesavingfoods.com. Lifesavingfood.com is one of my sponsors, and yes, it is a food storage and preparedness company. And just for my listeners, there is a 25% discount in store for you if you uh, go to their website, you decide, hey, this is what I want to buy. You get to check out, put in the coupon code H-Y-D-E. That's my last name. It'll get you a 25% discount. That is a better discount than you would get if you went directly to ReadyWise food them, Foods themselves. Very generous on the part of my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com. Please check them out. There's a link in the show notes. I just wanted to finish one final thought here from this article by J.B. Shirk. The frogs have begun fleeing the government's boiling pot. He says, so the world is waking up to the reality that only one real conflict exists. And that is between individual liberty and total state domination. Thanks to decades of taxation and money printing, well, the states do have a lot of pretty toys. But with history as a guide, he says, I'll bet every time on those poor souls who choose to defend freedom. Hey, that would be us. That's you and me. <laughs> Only I don't think of us as poor souls. I think that, uh, I think actually we are, uh, I think we're blessed for, for being in a place where we can stand up and make that difference. In fact, if it doesn't weird you out too much, I'll just, I'll take it one step further. I think that, uh, I think that uh, freedom is the greatest gift that our creator gives to his children. 
And I, and I say that with the understanding it's, it's the kind of gift that uh, it's not just, uh, yeah, you just shower freedom on everybody and everything magically gets better. You have to be the kind of person who qualifies for freedom. You, you can't be hedonistic and enjoy truly being a free individual, even though some people conflate those two ideas. But if freedom is among the greatest gifts of the Almighty, then wouldn't it stand to reason that uh, in defense of those gifts and and in in, uh, the furtherance of those gifts, the Almighty would, would lean upon people and call people to stand and, and to be a witness for, for why this is so important? Just a thought. Thus endeth the Sunday School lesson. Let's, let's get back to, to some other topics here. One of the toughest challenges that any one of us is going to face on a day-to-day basis is learning how to reach out to people who are um, ideologically possessed. I was going to say politically possessed, but um, this could go outside of politics as well. People who are bound up in one idea, racism's everywhere, or, you know, whatever it may be. That's, I'm just using that as, as one of the more ubiquitous ones that, that we encounter. But there comes a point where people are willing to put certain ideas above reality. And that's scary for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it makes you a monomaniac. It makes you singularly focused on something where you have tunnel vision. Secondly... It's, it's dangerous because people who put their, their faith in just that one idea have a tendency to become um, maniacal, brainwashed. I'm, I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm calling them names, but I, I'm saying this with the understanding we've all been brainwashed at, at some level. So interacting with them and, and, and interacting with people who see reality in such a different way that you think, are we even standing on the same planet? That can be a challenge. And there's a great article from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org. A simple test for determining a person's level of PC craziness. Now he says, we've gone through the craziest two years I've ever seen. In no particular order, we've suffered from lockdowns and masks thanks to a virus and an overbearing government. The last presidential election brought chaos and accusations of fraud. We've had riots in cities. Urban crime has skyrocketed. There were attempts to defund the police. And in some places, Christmas shopping now means dozens of people racing into retail stores and helping themselves to the goods on the shelves. Critical race theory appears alive and well, labeling whites as evil and America as the most bigoted nation in the world. We've suffered a disastrous debacle in Afghanistan. A few million illegal aliens have crossed our southern border. Inflation is eating into wages and the Green New Deal seems almost superfluous now with the price of gas at the pump curtailing travel by car. This tidal wave of chaos and mayhem has driven some of us round the bend as well. Drug overdoses are way up. Many Americans claim they are depressed and with good reason. The fear-mongering, especially about the Wu flu, continues unabated. And some of our politicians and pundits banging that drum seem to seem themselves to have gone uh, oot-fray, oopsley. Sorry, I'm my pig Latin is not fluent. Given that many of my fellow citizens may be poco loco in the cocoa nowadays, in part because they're misinformed about these current events, Jeff Minnick says, I decided to devise a simple test to identify those who still live in fear or who take their news solely from corporate mainstream media. So here's one way to judge whether your dinner companions have retained all their marbles. Germany sanctions euthanasia. 
legally allowing those who wish to depart the planet to do so. Recently, the German euthanasia organization who assists those wishing to die announced that it would only offer its services to those who have received the needle and are fully vaccinated against the virus. Now, you mentioned that story during dinner conversation. Those left aghast by this foolishness, and especially those who burst out laughing, those are the people in their right minds. But he says, pity that person who says, well, that makes sense to me. Here's a joke that could also delineate certain differences. How can Dr. Fauci save lives? By quitting his job. Now again, those who smile are on board ship. Those who purse their lips and shake their heads are flailing away in a river of fear. And if you want to test the media literacy of your companions, ask one of these questions or make one of these statements in their hearing. What race were Kyle Rittenhouse's assailants? Now, someone who doesn't know the name Kyle Rittenhouse could be admired for shying away from current events altogether or regarded as a dunderhead. It's your choice. Casually wonder aloud why the state of Florida, which has been back to business as usual for months now, has one of the lowest COVID rates in the country. Bring up climate change again casually and with a Gallic shrug ask how the United States can fight climate change when China is the world's biggest polluter and is busy building more coal burning power plants. More bluntly, you might ask why it is that in the land of the free, our federal government continues to imprison scores of trespassers arrested last January 6th during the insurrection. (laughs) Now, Jeff Minnick says, look, once you've identified these people, especially those driven half mad by fear of the woo flu, resist the temptation to regard them with contempt. Compassion is the better option. That masked young person you see walking alone along a deserted sidewalk on a chilly morning in a brisk wind is a victim of fear created by our media and public officials. That niece who at Thanksgiving declared whiteness anathema deserves not scorn but pity for her ignorance and indoctrination. He says fear and madness abound these days. But here's the good news. The rest of us don't have to participate. Stay sane, everyone says Jeff Minnick. Now, I'm not saying you should go out there and be testing everybody to see, you know, all right, who's paying attention and who isn't. But I do think it's it's probably a good idea to be aware that there are people who are running on pure fear. Fear of the, you know, the un, the deplorables taking over America. Fear of insurrection. Fear of, you know, the unmasked. Fear of the unvaccinated. To them, those fears seem very, very real. And I know that it's frustrating to some, and there's the idea that, well, I just want to backhand them across the face and snap them back to reality. I don't know that that's going to get you the result that you're looking for. In my experience, the best tactic that I have found is to simply speak the truth with love, plant seeds, let people come to the truth at their own pace, But don't force people. We'll actually touch on this a little bit more um, just a little bit later in the show. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the uh, trial of Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend and how this applies. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out here to the uh, Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. What an exciting time if you are uh, looking for a new home. And there's a lot of people who are moving into the Intermountain West, so this is... uh, This is not just a theoretical exercise. A lot of folks moving uh, to the great state of Utah. If you're one of them and you're looking to secure a mortgage from a VA loan to a traditional loan or even a reverse mortgage, you need to talk to my friend Heather Turner and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call her at 7, or let me try this, area code 435-703-4522, or stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, change. I've spent way too much of my life, you know, fighting change. I can't do that. I'm dragged kicking and screaming, and yet I have gradually and grudgingly come to the conclusion, yeah, change is the only constant. And I love the people who have chosen to roll with changes and reinvent themselves rather than simply being controlled by the events around them. It's taken me a while to become one of those people, but I'm much happier with that approach. And I'm encouraged when I see articles like the one here from Kerry McDonald about how burned out teachers are now launching their own schools instead of abandoning their passion. Here's the best cool. This is the coolest thing about this. They're actually succeeding. Carrie McDonald writes that teachers across the country are feeling burned out and depleted, particularly as school coronavirus policies and staffing shortages make their jobs more difficult. Now, according to a survey by the Rand Corporation, nearly a quarter of teachers plan to leave the profession in 2021. And teachers experienced higher rates of work-related stress and depression than other adults. A recent letter from teachers and staff at a small Vermont public elementary school to their superintendent and school board members echoes the feelings of many public school personnel. Quote, Everybody is stepping up to try to do what is asked of them. Everybody is feeling inadequate, exhausted, and defeated much of the time. This is educators at the, oh boy, Otakwachi School in Hartford. Colleagues are questioning whether changing professions is in their best interest, they wrote. Now, Kerry says, rather than abandoning their passion for teaching, Some educators are discovering that they can do what they love and avoid the bureaucracy and stress of a conventional classroom by starting their own micro-schools. Have you heard of these before? Micro-schools are modern twists on the quaint one-room schoolhouse model, where small multi-age groups of students learn together in more intimate educational settings, like private homes, with individualized attention from adult educators and facilitators. She says interest in micro school interest in micro schools rather accelerated over the past year as school shutdowns led parents to consider home-based pandemic pods to help their children learn in small safe groups. Some teachers were recruited to lead pods while others set out to create their own learning communities and micro school models. Now these entrepreneurial educators are finding they have many resources available to them to launch their own innovative schools. So they're seeing this as a platform for entrepreneurship. Kirk Umber, co-founder of A.School, a learning management program or platform for teachers who are creating microschools, says there are a lot of good teachers stuck in the broken system. Instead of leaving them or instead of them leaving the profession altogether due to burnout, 
He says, teachers can create a learning environment where they can thrive and have better outcomes with maximum autonomy and sustainability. Now, Umber explains that a teacher can leave a public school and create a micro school with 10 to 15 students earning the same or more money with less stress and more satisfaction. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal. The ADOT school software is free to use and helps educators to initiate and manage their micro school's website, enrollment, communication, and reporting systems, while enabling them to customize their own curriculum and policies. The EdTech startup takes a percentage of the credit card billing fees. Umber founded ADOT School earlier this year with his brother, Dr. Josh Umber, a family physician in Kansas, who realized the parallels between healthcare and education. High levels of burnout, more paperwork, and less time for personalized attention plague both doctors and teachers. Several years earlier, the brothers built Atlas.md, a practice management portal to help physicians strike out on their own with direct primary care practices that offer high-touch, membership-based healthcare services without insurance and related organizational hassles. Physicians are able to serve fewer patients with higher quality medical care while earning the same or more than they did in larger, red tape-laden medical practices. Dr. Umber says, as our own kids grew, it became clear that teachers are suffering from the almost identical problem we're helping doctors with, to an eerie degree. He says, with physicians, there's high burnout from administratively bloated systems, more paperwork, less patient care, and less pay. You can make those same correlations to teachers who are seeing more kids, spending less time with each kid, doing more paperwork, dealing with more bureaucracy, and teaching to the test rather than being able to be creative. So like doctors creating primary care practices, teachers creating micro schools helps them to avoid burnout, earn a good living, and do fulfilling work with optimal freedom and flexibility. Now, Kerry McDonald says micro schools were gaining traction prior to the pandemic, with micro-school networks like Arizona-based Prenda leading the way. She says, when I profiled Prenda in this column in October 2019, the company had 80 micro-school locations throughout Arizona, mostly in private homes, and serving approximately 550 students. Now, Prenda enrolls nearly 3,000 learners across Arizona, Colorado, Kansas, Louisiana, and New Hampshire. Kelly Smith, who is Prenda's founder, says, Between teacher strikes, COVID, and the school board wars, there's been a lot of energy spent in fights between adults at the expense of kids' learning. Many educators, parents, and policymakers are starting to see micro-schools as a format that balances small groups, flexibility, and academics. Now, Arizona students attend Prenda micro-schools tuition-free through the state's extensive school choice policies that encourage education innovation including supporting virtual charter school providers such as EdKey, Inc., which, with which Prenda partners. An affiliation with EdKey is what enabled Tamara Becker to quickly launch her micro-school this year in Fountain Hills, Arizona. An educator for over 25 years, Becker has worked in both district and virtual schools as a teacher, administrator, special education director, assistant superintendent, and most recently as the superintendent of Primavera, Arizona's largest online school. In August 2021, Becker launched the Adamo Microschool with 12 students in kindergarten through 7th grade. Today, the school has 20 students and continues to expand, particularly as parents of children in the local school districts grow increasingly frustrated 
over mask and classroom quarantine policies. She plans to open at Adamo micro schools in the coming months. Now, this particular plat- this particular uh, model uses a ha- blend of hands-on, project-based learning as well as the digital learning platform Bright Thinker. Carrie says the micro school employs only certified teachers. Something Becker says separates her school from other micro school networks. But she works hard to create a family-centered learning environment that prioritizes parents and customizes learning to each student's district distinct needs. Rather. For instance, Adamo currently has two autistic children in the program who Becker says have flourished both socially and academically within the microschool setting. Becker says it's really re-energized me. As you move up in administrative roles, you get less connected to students, so it's been nice to reconnect, get back to my teaching roots, and do something different. Now, Becker believes the pandemic has created the necessary conditions to spark education, entrepreneurship, and change as more parents demand more learning choices for their children. Becker says the way we've always structured education is not the way all students learn and thrive, and she encourages other educators to launch their own micro-schools. She says, take the leap. We need people to take the risk to think outside the box and to walk outside of their comfort zone, because if we don't, we're going to continue to fail a large percentage of our student population. Becker says students need to be ignited and engaged and to love what they do every day when they come to school. And Carrie McDonald says, yeah, teachers should similarly feel ignited and engaged and to love what they do every day as well. So I guess if there's one bright spot to look at, you know, with all the shifts and changes taking place, it does give us, and in this case, educators, the chance to reinvent yourself. And thank heavens for those brave souls who are willing to take those first tentative steps and, and say, what could we make of this? What could we do? I would say that's, uh, that's a positive. I wish more people would take that, uh, that mindset, although I understand very well why people don't. After all, I feel like I spent the majority of my adult life trying very hard to avoid change. No! Keep it away! Once you get used to the discomfort of being, you know, out of the comfort zone... It's amazing the possibilities that can open up. Got a link to this great article in the show notes. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to uh, GovernYourIncome.com. This is an opportunity for people who are looking to really work for themselves, and I mean to be truly independent. I'm just going to kind of leave it at that and tell you it's not for everybody, but click on the link that I provide in the show notes, and you can you can quickly uh, suss it out for yourself. If it strikes the right nerve, hey, get in touch with them and, and uh, learn about Govern Your Income. Maybe uh, day trading on the foreign currency exchange is uh, that that welcome break of reinventing yourself that you've been thinking about making. So I haven't uh, talked a lot. Uh, I try not to spend much time on personalities and and thing and issues so much as you know to talk about about the principles that are at stake. But I know that, that there's a fair amount of interest in the trial of Jeffrey Epstein's uh, former girlfriend and I don't even know if I'm saying her name right. I want to say Ghislaine 
Maxwell. I think the S is silent. Anyway, um, she is on trial right now. I'm seeing some media coverage, actually more than I thought I would see. But uh, really, you don't hear much talk about this. I mean, this isn't getting any or near the coverage that the Rittenhouse trial got. And, of course, it's because there's, there's a lot that's at stake here. For those who don't know, Jeffrey Epstein was a very, very wealthy investor and playboy in the New York City scene, owned a big ranch in New Mexico, and had ties to the very rich and the very famous. But there was this pesky problem of uh, he also seemed to have a real penchant for uh, sexual dalliances with uh, underage girls. And it sounds like Ghislaine Maxwell was one of his key partners in procuring uh, young women to come and to uh, to tend to the needs of the uh, the very wealthy and uh, very well connected. I'm trying to remember who the there was a journalist and, and his name escapes me now. Uh, years ago, went to he was invited to some uh, some get together at Epstein's place in New York City, and when he showed up, he says the butler um, informed him that uh, well you know if. Uh, if you would like, uh, we could arrange for a, a personal massage from a young woman, uh, if you're interested. But this uh, this journalist said, you know, even at that time, I recognize this is a honeypot, man. That sounds like the perfect way to get somebody to go and do something that compromises them, have it videotaped or audio taped or whatever, and then, you know, blackmail them for the rest of their life. Oh, don't act like stuff like this doesn't happen. But... It's curious how many people don't really want to know if the very wealthy and the very politically connected were engaging in unspeakable things out there on Epstein's island. I forgot about his island, too, but a lot of people flew on those flights. And now I think the news coming out today is Epstein himself visited the Bill Clinton White House when Clinton was in office no less than 17 times over Clinton's eight years in the presidency. So I came across an article here from Paul Rosenberg. This is from last, no, it's from two years ago. Right after Jeffrey Epstein allegedly killed himself. And the title here is Epstein, Too Much for People to Take. I thought you'd find this interesting. If If you're not hearing a lot of talk about this, it may be a conspiracy to tamp it down, but it might be something even, even more relatable. Rosenberg says, uh, It's profoundly dangerous to teach people things they're not ready to learn. And that's why people who see pedophilia in high places keep their mouths shut. If they speak up, they're likely to be chopped up by the friends of the pedophiles and to the approval of an uncomfortable public. And he says, I presume this is also why women shut their mouths after being abused. If you tell people what they don't want to know, they'll be glad when you're swept away. Now, the unspoken parts of such things are the implications they cast. If Uncle Henry is a rapist, how come I love him? If President X is a lifelong abuser of women, why did I vote for him twice and defend him a hundred times? If Prince Jimmy molests teenagers, how come I adore the royal family? Paul Rosenberg says it's the self-contradiction that people don't want to face in all this. Calling some math teacher a monster isn't a problem. The issue is everything attached to it. Americans, for example, are taught that we are the good guys, that our system is constructed with such genius that it always writes itself and that it produces the highest grades of freedom and righteousness. 
But if our senators, presidents, and important men feed on the fear and gullibility of teenage girls, if the magic system, right down to the cops, reliably protects sexual abusers, then what we believed was wrong and we are ruled by monsters in makeup and suits. And that's simply too much to take, at least for a large number of people. So they avoid the subject and they wait for a respectable reason to wash it away with a wave of denial. So what are we to make of the uh, Epstein affair? Now, this was two years ago that he wrote this, so keep that in mind. But Paul Rosenberg says, it's too early to know what will come of this, of course. There will be some kind of public investigation, but most likely it will, will result in a few prison guards going to jail, maybe a supervisor or two. And he's talking about in the wake of Epstein's death. Ho-hum, people in robes have spoken, nothing more to see. Go back to your home, go to your comfortable illusions. Be sure to shout conspiracy theory at anyone who brings it up again. But he says, still, the Epstein affair may have some effect. The acts of the pedophile class were so open that some percentage of the populace won't want to forget. Consider, the one and only job of arguably the most prominent correctional facility in the United States was to keep this man alive for trial. His death, by whatever method, made it clear that the deep state can and does overpower the public state. Secondly, his list of friends makes it very clear that power and pedophilia are partners. Also, this pimp to the powerful and twisted was protected openly and over a long period of time. Will this sink into the general public? Paul Rosenberg says it's hard to say, but more or less everyone agrees it reeks. And consider some of the people who were happy to befriend this man. So let's, let's forget their names and just consider their positions. At least one U.S. president, a big-time royal dude, a U.S. senator, a U.S. governor, a large number of super-rich people, a super-famous entertainment guy, other famous entertainment guys, a super-famous lawyer, famous professors. More than that, a lot of these people remained Epstein's friends after he was convicted and jailed. Now, at a minimum, these people had to be hopelessly stupid. I'm not sure many of them are. But what? But if what stands behind this wasn't a Forrest Gump level of stupidity, then what was? So what do we do? Well, first of all, he says, don't jump to conclusions. Stay with facts. Forget about crusading for justice. Going too far is what the pedophiles need you to do. It's what empowers denial. But Paul Rosenberg suggested when you're talking to someone about this, make one point and then walk away. Let people absorb the one fact which takes time. Pushing people to accept everything at once is something we do for our own satisfaction, not for their benefit. And this is true on matters other than just, you know, Epstein. Paul Rosenberg says this is a marathon, not a sprint. If you do your job, facts will accumulate in people one by one, and then at some point in the future, they'll be able to see the full picture without the existential terror. I thought it was interesting that uh, the judge in the case was really reticent about uh, letting any of this information get out. And I think it's more or less a direct quote here is, uh, this is too salacious, which is the judge saying, you can't handle the truth to the public. I mean, there are a lot of things that people are willing to look the other way and to forgive. You know, Eric Swalwell, the representative from California, was having a very open sexual relationship with part of the Chinese intelligence community. 
okay, let me let me take the sugar coating off it. He was sleeping with uh, he was sleeping with a spy. People look the other way. Well, you know, but we need Swalwell. We need that guy in in Congress, and you know, the, but when it comes to abusing children sexually, even the most jaded person has a hard time excusing that. And so this is very dangerous territory for the for the very elite who think that they can operate above the law. I mean, there's already, you know, people out there saying, hey, Ghislaine Maxwell didn't kill herself, <laughs> just like Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. My advice is don't get caught up in the salacious details, but be aware that uh, the, the worst aspects of, of human nature are present very much in the elite, just like they are in, in the, the, the rabble, you know, the unwashed, the deplorables. One of the big differences, though, that you'll see is that the elite are told over and over that they are, you know, demigods of sort. They, they believe when people tell them, you are so powerful, you are so amazing. Maybe they start to believe that really they can operate uh, above the law or they can operate with impunity to those moral laws that bind the rest of us lesser beings. Well, should the cover ever come off on this story, I think they're going to learn that uh, not only uh, does the public have little patience with this, but probably God himself doesn't care much for that kind of behavior. This is The Brian Hyde Show.